Hello, world. Welcome to the Speed Strength Show. I'm Braden. I'm Tommy. And I'm Molly. Uh, so my question for you guys today is if you could switch to any sport today in the world and immediately be exceptional at it, what would you choose? Oh, that's an easy one. Yeah? That's an easy one for me. <laughs> what is it? Oh, Formula One. 100% <laughs> can sign a $30 million contract and drive a super fast car and be considered the greatest driver in the world. 100% that's what I'm picking. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm not surprised that you would say that. That's tough for me, though. I don't know. I really have no idea. Lately, like I, I played football in university, so lately I've been I've been missing that quite a bit. But I don't know if I want to jump into the NFL, you know. <laughs> that's a pretty that's a pretty intense game. What about you, Molly? What, what would you pick? Well, I got Braden didn't even answer the question and he just deferred it. Well, I haven't, I haven't <laughs> answered yet. I'm going to, let me think about it for a second. Waiting to hear my answer, I guess. But yeah. I, I feel like I should have considered what Tommy's thinking about, like the money and the contracts and whatnot. Like I didn't think about that at all. I wanted uh, I would say Aussie rules football. I think that that would be such a good time to just like hop into and be, be good at. Cause like, it's a sport that we don't get a ton of exposure to like here in Canada, you know, we all, we all skate or play soccer or whatever it is. And then I'd love to do that. The Aussies yeah. love it too. I feel like if you were an Aussie rules football, like champion in Australia, you would just be a hero to everybody. <laughs> like everywhere you went, they'd be like, this is the greatest Aussie rules football player of all time. And you would just be showered in praise all the time. Yeah. That's a sick sport too. Those guys and, and girls, they're yeah. Crazy. All, all of them. I think. Okay, you're on the spot now. You have to answer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Now I've thought about it. Uh, I would go with rugby. I think I played rugby in high school and I missed that. Also, um, I think injury risk and head trauma is a little bit lower in rugby, which is nice. Um, and you drink beer after every single game. So that'd be, that'd be pretty fun. Yeah. You're not wrong. Sometimes drink right now. <laughs> <laughs> think about it. I mean, I'm sure if it's like, adult recreational you know beer league uh what's it called like any types of those sports i feel like people do that stuff all the time on the keg on the sideline i actually didn't take into account the safety factor um like because brayden you were talking about like the head trauma and stuff like that i mean race car driving is obviously dangerous i maybe you pick something like golf potentially that's like safer and you can still make a ton of money and play till you're like 50 Man, but, I didn't think about golf. Golf's a lot of fun. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. So I don't <laughs> think I'd pick that, but I didn't consider the safety factor. But I still think I'd rather do something that I want to do, even if it's a little bit more unsafe, than pick a boring sport. No offense to golf fans, but it's boring. I mean, maybe it's boring to watch. It's not boring to play if you're good. Boring to watch, frustrating to play. <laughs> I haven't gotten into golf because I know I won't be immediately good at it. So I'm like, no, it's just not for me. (laughs) If I can't show up and immediately like be okay at it, I'll just get pissed off. So (laughs) I feel like people spend their whole lives being trash at golf. Unfortunately, it's one of those sports where like, I feel like it's tough to learn. Absolutely. Yeah, they absolutely do. I mean, it depends on your definition. Like I, I'm, I, I think it's the one where, because you're not playing against anybody, really. You're playing playing against yeah, you yourself. Are. Like I mean, you're you can beat all the other people you're playing with. Yeah, and it's not hard to beat them because they're all terrible too. But you know, it's well. I mean, speak for yourself. I have no talent with golf, so it's tough <laughs> for me to beat other people that suck. No, but I mean, I don't know. Like you can, if you're if you're bad at football, but you play on a bad team in a bad league, then it's. I mean, you can still have your moments. And you can run and you can do all the things that football players do, but I don't know. I guess the margin for error in golf is so small so that if you, if you do it like 99% correct, then it's still potentially going to be a terrible shot. You know, that's why I don't play golf. I just feel like it's so frustrating and I have a short fuse, so I don't really have, I'm sure like my family could probably share with you a whole bunch of stories when I was growing up where, I was probably not behaving very well on the golf course because I was just so mad. And so I just stay away from golf. 
I remember you getting pretty fired up in intramural volleyball or intramural basketball. Sorry. Those were also not very good moments either. <laughs> I did not behave myself very well. Although that one team deserved it. That one yeah. team that was playing beginner basketball and hit like 70% from beyond the arc who hits 70% from the, from beyond the arc and has never played basketball. Yeah. They were right. in it for the Nike sweaters that you got for winning the league. Yeah. So that's, that's true. They deserved it. But the other teams, I probably, <laughs> I should have toned it down. <laughs> it happens. No, that was a good time. How's your patience, Molly, with, with golf or sport in general? Uh, you know, like again, not, uh, not good. <laughs> <It's a laughs> short fuse as well. Yeah. I think if you ever saw me play, uh, play badminton when I played in high school, you'd know. <laughs> Just a weird one. Yeah, I was, I played rugby and, and badminton in high school. So, you know, I was like, get really worked up during badminton and then go take it all out on the, on the pitch. <laughs> mm, I was thinking the opposite. I was envisioning this angry rugby player just showing up at the badminton court and losing it on everybody. <laughs> smash after smash after smash. <laughs> yeah, just rifling the, what, what, is it a racket? Is that what they call it? Okay. I just, I wasn't sure if it had a special name, but like just smashing the racket. Just, it doesn't seem like a very badminton thing to do. No. And so I'm envisioning those two things coming together and just, I've never seen someone angry on a badminton court. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. There was a couple, a couple of dented rackets in my day, but <laughs> yeah, I was imagining you snapping it over your knee. It's got such a thin neck for it, anyway. But that is a, and it, I haven't heard that combination before rugby and badminton from anybody. It's a weird one for sure. <laughs> so for everybody listening, you obviously know that there is a third person here today. So we have Molly who's joining us uh, today. So yeah, huge, huge thank you to you for coming on the show. We're super stoked to have you, have you on and kind of, kind of pick your brain about some of the cool things you've been doing out in the West coast. So, I mean, I'll give you a few minutes here. You can, you know, introduce yourself, tell us what you're doing, kind of new adventures you're up to and yeah. All the good stuff. Yeah, for sure. So again, hi, Molly. Thanks for, for having me. Really stoked to be talking to you guys today. Um, so I'm out here in Victoria. Uh, I work for uh, the University of Victoria um, as one of the lead strength and conditioning coaches for the University of Victoria Vikes, uh, swimming, track, and uh, women's rugby teams. And I also work for Team Canada Women's Sitting Volleyball as, uh, as their strength and conditioning coach as well. So um, how I actually got into coaching. I was, I was one of the first students to go through the, the strength and conditioning placement at the, the University of Alberta back when I did my undergrad uh, over there. And that was kind of um, Michael's project. You know, Michael Cook, obviously, Tommy, you know him well. So I was one of his first students out there. And that was in my, my third year or so of, of my undergrad, which I did in, uh, in kinesiology and majoring in sport performance. So I was out there, I was uh, placed with, with Joel, who was working with hockey, swimming and wrestling. Uh, now he's working with volleyball as well. And volunteering with him was, was re really interested me in, in strength and conditioning, getting a little bit of exposure to a bunch of different sports and training methods and testing protocols, monitoring and whatnot. And uh, what I really liked about doing, doing that was that I got to synthesize so many of the things that I was learning during my undergrad and kind of that more applied setting. As we know, it's kind of hard to to sit there in class and, and, and read about things, but not actually get to apply them anywhere. So that's what got me into the, the coaching part. Best part of coaching is, is, you know, coaching the athletes. So it was awesome. Um, yeah. So now of course I'm, I'm out here doing my master of science in, in biomechanics, um, working with, with these sports. So came out here because of the biomechanics research itself and some of the coaches and, and supervisors, um, that I could have out here. And I'm really lucky that I also get to continue working with Team Canada uh, as they are a, a decentralized team. So I'm their, their first strength and conditioning coach, actually. They, they haven't had anyone um, before me. I started with them last April in 2020, kind of right before everything shut down. And that was uh, Michael, actually, who, who recommended me for for this position and met with the team and their whole integrated service team was awesome. It was a good fit. So with them for about a year now and uh you know the whole decentralized training thing is actually uh 
we've all gotten really good at it. I think all strength coaches have gotten pretty good at it over the, the last year from having to, to suddenly be remote coaches. So uh, it's a big learning curve for all of us, but I mean, that's going to be, that's pretty much what we do all the time as a, as a decentralized team. So, yeah. I didn't, I didn't know you were the first strength coach for that team. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I didn't, I, I just, I figured that you had taken over from, from somebody else because I figured they were a nationally funded team and they were, you know, competing at, at the highest level. So I figured that they would already have that type of stuff set up, but that's, that's super cool that you got to kind of go in there and like build the culture or still building a culture from, from the ground up, which I, I didn't know that, which I think, like I said, that that's really cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's it was a really awesome experience, and again, like you said, just coming in and kind of being able to to start my my own thing instead of kind of taking over from someone else, living in someone else's shadow for the first little bit. I really just got to get to know the athletes and the team and kind of how they operate and how how I could build a culture, like you you said, which is always an ongoing uh, ongoing effort. But uh, yeah, it's been great. I imagine it's it's nice to have that kind of like clean slate with these athletes. I mean, I'm, maybe they've had strength and conditioning experience individually, but not as a collective before. So they maybe didn't have as much of an expectation of what was a good thing for you to do or not a good thing for you to do. Um, but maybe a little bit tricky as well, you know, not having um, maybe a framework to step into in terms of like what someone else has done before. And I, I, it was a new sport for you as well, getting into, right? Yeah, brand new sport for me, but uh, you hit the nail on the head there with just clean slate. Uh, so you kind of come in and, and apply some different things and figure out what, what worked and what didn't. And although many of the athletes had their own strength and conditioning coaches, um, one of the, the best things to have seen um, come out of me being uh, like, a coach for all of them over the last year is the culture that has developed around strength and conditioning for everyone. It's not so much, you know, we're all off doing our own thing, all off, uh, you know, working with our own trainers, maybe different ideas about how to periodize over a year, but it's more of a, of a collective now and athletes are talking about their programs or maybe doing their conditioning and their speed sessions together, which has been uh, really awesome to see as well that uh, come out of it. What was one of the, the first things you kind of did to figure out the sport. I think every strength coach goes through this at some point, they end up working with a team or a sport that they've never played themselves or never worked with before. And now you have this, this new sport with athletes in it that you've never worked with before. What were sort of the, the things that you did to explore the sport or figure out like the needs analysis or how are you going to go about training these athletes? Yeah, totally. Uh, so first thing I did was really just watched a lot of game film. Um, I mean, I actually hadn't had a, a ton of uh, experience even understanding the sport or, or, you know, how long is a set? How long is, is a rally in this sport typically? Like what, what do the movements look like that they're doing on the court and what do they need, as you said? Um, to actually do a needs analysis, I just needed to understand what this sport is. So pretty much went back to, uh, to their... 2016 Paralympic uh, footage. So that's all all over the place on YouTube. And they also, of course, have footage from practices and whatnot that we could look at. So I spent a lot of hours just watching the game and kind of understanding um, what we were doing, A, so what Team Canada did, and then also watching kind of the styles of other teams. Um, so whoever they were playing against, what were they doing? Were there any differences or similarities? Uh, and, and how would that actually influence training too? So after I watched a ton of film, figured, okay, I know, I know what the sport is at this point, at least have a good idea of, of what they do day to day, then uh, dove into some of the research that's been done. Um, and surprise, surprise, not a, not a whole lot of research out there on, on sitting volleyball, as with uh, a lot of parasports. So I think we're, we're starting to see a lot more, which I'm really happy about in parasport in general. But uh, yeah, not a, a ton of volleyball or sitting volleyball specific uh, research, but there's kind of enough to to go off of um, there are a few studies published on heart rate during, during games and uh, some different physical testing parameters that are are important uh, so I got to read some of that but that's another clean slate that I had in front of me there was de determining what was what was going to be important so um, a lot of what I, I did was then went back to what I learned in my kind of 
internship or placement. Um, if you know Joel Jackson well or Eric or any of those guys, you know they they do a lot with like uh, dynamic correspondence and they're very very into to that concept. So spent a lot of time just watching those overhead movements that, that my sitting volleyball athletes do and thinking about, okay, what are the, the actual kinetics, the kinematics of a, an overhead movement in sitting volleyball, like a spike or a set that might be different than, than those that are present in standing volleyball and how are they moving on the floor that, uh, you know, the details of that leg extension that happens as they're sliding across the floor. How can I, can I look at that in the gym and, and improve or help that? So those were some, some of the big, big things I looked at first, but the, uh, the other one that came up was that since we're working with a population, many of, of whom have experienced an amputation or, or a big life change that has, has led them to becoming a, a para-athlete was there's also this, this other side where you're, you're looking at the health of the athlete too. So are there things going on in, in the joint of, of the side, they might have the amputation that from a strength and conditioning perspective, not only will it help their athletic performance, but, uh, but health in their daily life as well. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that sounds like a sound kind of progression there for sure. Um, have you, like, are, do you use any kind of research that has been done on uh, standing volleyball and the, like at least the upper body mechanics with the spike and the serve and, and the set, I guess, um, from that perspective, or like you work with swimmers, swimmers are obviously overhead athletes as well. Um, I imagine like, it's not going to be exactly the same, but somewhat similar in terms of mechanics and, and training principles, I would imagine as well. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of what it comes, uh, comes down to for us is just taking care of the shoulders because they're doing so much overhead. And, and you see that of course, in, in standing volleyball as well. So, um, of course we'll do the strengthening exercises, but also I've, I've worked a lot with, uh, the team physio on how do we just a prepare these, their shoulders for, for movement and for these, these overhead things. And also, um, just make sure that if any little niggles come up, what can we address in the gym? Uh, so that when they, they centralize at camp, it doesn't become a bigger problem or anything like that. Uh, again a unique thing about being a decentralized team is that they might not have many practices while they're away but then when we centralize once once a month you know it jumps from one two court sessions a week to suddenly 14 court sessions a week so how are we addressing that kind of gap in the gym um and recreating some of those movements so yes definitely long answer to your question but uh looking into to the mechanics of of standing volleyball um moves like the the set in particular and, and spikes um and trying to compare well are they actually creating the same forces it's a a shorter distance that they're that they're spiking typically so is it as much speed um as in in standing and that's what i'm looking at right now we're trying to characterize through some video analysis yeah that's a really good point i didn't even think about the the decentralization and then having that huge spike in in volume that they're, they're dealing with. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's cool that you have to think about now, okay, what am I going to do to load these athletes overhead and in a swinging type pattern? And almost, I guess in, in your sense, you're trying to replicate some of the things in practice in training, knowing that they're going to come to that, that volume at some point, which I mean, I sometimes is the opposite of what we're trying to do in strength and conditioning, right? We go, they repeat these things over and over and over again in their sport. Let's do something different. But in this case, you don't want to have these huge fluctuations in volume and activity that they're doing. So, I mean, yeah, that's an interesting point that, okay, you have to think about replicating the sport in some ways in the weight room as best you can to prepare them for that volume, correct? Yeah, exactly. And then it'll kind of follow that pattern of, you know, on, on weeks that we're, we're away, we've got lots of volume of those movements, but then when we're centralizing, you know, I'm not going to have a ton of shoulder work that, that week because they're, they've got that huge spike in volume on the court. Um, and that comes down to a lot of the planning that, that I do with the head coach. We, we talk a lot about kind of what the practices are going to look like, what they're going to be doing. Um, the other thing that, that has come up, um, is how we do their conditioning too, which has been uh, really interesting for me at least, because not only is the, the load on the shoulder high from those overhead movements that they're doing, but if you watch them moving around on the floor, they're pushing back and forth. And of course we coach them to, you know, use all of their limbs, use the leg to, to push away too. But, you know, 
moving around just with your shoulders, trying to move the whole body mass around on the floor is, is a lot of load too. And we also know that conditioning is pretty task specific. So if I'm just having them go on the bike, they're probably not going to be conditioned super well for, for moving around on the floor. So we've started adding in, um, kind of most of our training, especially now heading closer to the games is, uh, in those weeks that they're not centralized, a lot of um, repeated efforts on the floor as a conditioning session. So not only to, to work on those aerobic or anaerobic, um, sorry, capabilities that we're, we're looking at, but also to hide some shoulder work in there again, so they don't get absolutely slammed when they come to, to camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna mention that too. Like their, their shoulders are asked to do so much more, I think, um, in sitting volleyball compared to standing volleyball because obviously with the standing, like you need to be able to create a lot of speed and power and handle that speed and power as you're moving through like the spikes and and that sort of thing and control in the sets. But there's no, like, you don't need to support yourself at all. There's no real strength work, I think, in standing volleyball, but um, with the seated, like watching the move around, like it is a strength, speed, endurance kind of a thing all the time as they're just sort of shuffling around trying to find their positioning and stuff. So it's, it's definitely a unique challenge. I think training like the upper body training, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you wouldn't maybe think of sitting volleyball as like an endurance sport. And of course it's not, but the strength endurance is definitely huge of being able to, you know, by the end of the game, are you stay, still able to move with as much intensity on the floor when it counts as you were uh, at the, at the start of the game. And that's what we've been going after quite a bit. So then what are, Sorry to cut you off, Tommy. Um, I actually didn't say anything. I was just bringing the mic okay, closer. Okay. Um, so what are the some of like the key, like if someone, an athlete is really good at sitting volleyball, they can do these kinds of things in the gym or on the court. Like if, if we're talking about standing volleyball, obviously jump height and hit power are two things that are like relatively important. What are those things for sitting volleyball? Yeah, absolutely. So the, t- the testing battery that uh, that we kind of developed, like there is a bit of research out there on this. So it was a combination of, of that research and then also a little bit of trial and error and kind of figuring out what was what was going to work for us. Um, so tests that we use are like a five meter seated sprint test. Um, so fast as they can go five meters forward, basically. Um, and then we also do a modified T test. Uh, so same, same principle as a, as a standing T-test, just with different distances. Um, so those have been helpful. We do a med ball chest pass as well, just for, for the power, upper body power. Uh, and what I'm looking at right now is putting together a, a repeated high intensity endurance test that's modified for, for sitting volleyball as well. That hasn't quite rolled out yet, but we're just kind of working through the physiology of that one. But um, what's important for, for us and what that athlete that you're saying, this theoretical athlete, uh, would be would be good at would for sure be that five meter sprints uh forward and then our upper body power stuff um as well the the t tests i like because it's kind of those those different planes of motion and um you can tell what's the difference if you take the splits between you know the first cones and then left to right or, or right to left, you can kind of tell whether or not um, they're slower moving from one side to the other and then look at that and say, okay, well, which side is there, is there amputation on? Is there something that we need to address there so that they can move as quickly to one side as they can, uh, can to the other. Uh, so those are important to me. And then in the gym, for sure, you know, bench press, uh, some of those overhead movements. So uh, a lot of like overhead um, press or push press is one I use as well because if they're on the court they are they're actually coordinating both the extension of their legs with that overhead extension at the at the same time have you found that that kind of helps you like separate like does does the ranking within some of the testing does that indicate maybe the position of the players on the team in terms of ranking like does it help you separate uh, you know, like the, the higher from the lower level athletes or may like, I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, totally. Uh, yes, I'd say it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's indicative of, of some of those things for sure. We can separate them out a bit. The, the interesting thing though, about a pair sport, like sitting volleyball is that, you know, there aren't a ton of people playing it in general. So it's not necessarily at the level that we would be, um, 
you know, getting saying that you can only be on the team if you can hit kind of these these parameters, however, if that makes sense. So we're working on hoping to build out over the next few years, kind of this ideal profile of like a sitting volleyball athlete, but due to, you know, there's not a ton of research out there right now, it's going to take a little while of kind of looking at their testing scores, comparing that to their actual, um, you know, playing and, and some of their things like their attack velocities and whatnot over, over a long period of time until we can kind of build those profiles out and whatnot. But uh, the five, again, the five meter sprint and the T tester are definitely two that I would say I can look at and then look at, um, you know, court skills or whatever it is and, and pick it out a bit there. Yeah. I'm just always curious to hear from people when they start working with, with a new sport, what they feel like the, the differentiators in performance are. I know like Braden, when we went back, like going back to the days of Waterloo, when we worked with basketball and neither of us had a lot of basketball experience you're digging through trying to find what are the, there's a lot of things that matter, but what matters like the most, right? What's that one or two things or qualities that really make the special athletes extremely talented and that helps separate them from kind of the, the rest of the field. So I was just kind of curious now that you've done some of that testing and spent more time with the team, you know, if, if that's starting to, to narrow down to, yeah, okay, these things, if we, if we find an athlete that can do these things, we've probably found a pretty good athlete on our hands. hundred percent. It's definitely heading that way for sure. So, uh, that those overhead movements, super important, kind of, uh, the, the power, um, for sure. Cause that's obviously very, uh, well aligned with things like the attack velocity and whatnot. Um, and if you've watched any of these matches, those are sometimes those winning points is that the, the other team just kind of couldn't get there quite soon enough um, and whatnot. So definitely starting to go that way. Lots of work to be done, but I'm hoping to stick around long enough to, to tease that out more. Yeah, definitely. It definitely seems that way. Like obviously the way you win volleyball is hitting a ball that the other team can't get, you know? So if you, have the ability to hit with power and accuracy, then you win. If you have the ability to get to those tricky balls, then you win. So it, yeah, it definitely sounds like the, the upper body power and then the lower body or, you know, your mobility on the court essentially is like number. Well, both are number one, I suppose. Huge, huge. And uh, the other one that, uh, that was maybe a surprise for me, especially when I started working with them more was obviously like, First things I thought of were overhead power and, and whatnot. Uh, those were the, the evident ones that you'd need in this in the sport. Um, but something that's also come up is just the ability to kind of resist forces in a lot of different directions when you're seated. So um, actually being able to stay upright if you're reaching for one that comes way over your head and being able to kind of get there, maybe tip it or hit it or whatever it is, and then stay up and get back up actually. Um, so been a lot of creative core exercises uh, uh, there. And it comes down to not just core strength or anything like that, but also um, like hip stability and whatnot. So how strong are they in those positions? Um, so we've done a lot of like single leg work and actually a lot of um, kind of movement through like ranges of motion in their hips. And when we first started working on it, I think pretty much everyone found that there were pretty big differences between maybe the side that they do have an amputation versus um, the side that they, they don't have the amputation on in kind of that stability and that you notice um, would transfer kind of their ability to not fall over uh, quite as much or be able to come back up. So that was a surprise and, and interesting for me. Yeah, that was something actually I was thinking about earlier today when I was, when I was watching that a people, yeah, they, they tend to reach a lot. And like, if, if they're really extended, most of the time they're falling down and one and like they get back up quickly, obviously that's going to be the recovery is going to be part of it too. But if you don't need to get back up, that's obviously a huge bonus. Um, but as I was seeing, most of the people on the floor are, they're in like a 90, 90 position, um, kind of, I don't, I don't know how to describe it other than a 90, 90 position, one hips externally rotated, the other hips internally rotated. So I would imagine that there's huge imbalances in terms of mobility and strength and coordination and rain and like all that sort of stuff side to side, which, um, I mean, and that's kind of the thing with any sport, like how do you strike the balance between you want to balance it out a little bit to kind of keep them healthy or give them the other side of it so that, you know, at least 
they have the capability and, you know, they're not going to get hurt from lack of stability or whatever in, in a certain position, but you also don't want to change how they get the job done on the court. Yeah, absolutely. So we're not trying to, you know, change the way they sit or anything like that beyond what, what Nicole, like our head coach is doing. She's done a lot of work with how is actually kind of the best way for them to sit on the floor there. So worked a lot with her, just talking, talking about, okay, how will that pattern um, not be changed by what they're doing in the gym? So we do do like a ton of work with 9090s in the gym and kind of loading them up in different ways uh, and, and moving them around. But so not only are we, yeah, try and keep them healthy. But like you said, not change the way they sit. I also want them to maybe be able to switch between which leg that they kind of internally rotate versus externally rotate. And then that uh, is a way that they might be able to get across the court a little bit faster if they can switch quickly and push off versus kind of moving more slowly through that range of motion or just turning so that they're able to push off with the one leg. So um, yeah, it's been an, an interesting balance of those things, kind of deciding what's worth changing and what's just you know a symptom of the sport that we don't necessarily want to to modify to affect their performance on the court yeah there's sometimes asymmetries that you want yeah. <laughs> like a sport inherently has imbalances right like you look at a tennis player and one arm is going to be slightly larger than the other because that's their their hand for swinging the racket around so i think yeah like that's that's a great point that you're juggling these the, the balance between yeah, we want to keep them healthy and build some symmetry so that they can be versatile and do things on both sides. But then you also want to, you don't want to take away the asymmetry that might make them really good at what they're doing. And then you realize like, oh, I just screwed that up. And I took away the, the, the strength of this person to do whatever task it is that they're trying to do. Oh, exactly. And like, uh, and we've all been through this, but as, as strength coaches, obviously like the most important thing isn't what they're doing in the gym. The most important thing as we all know is what they're doing on the court. And you know, I'd like to think that what I do is important, but <laughs> yeah, obviously their, their performance out there is going to be, uh, what drives all my decisions. Um, which is, has been what I've tried to go after them for sure. Um, yeah, it's been interesting to, to work with the physio, the team physio on that, on on that note as well, of what we're, what we're going after for shoulder health and whatnot too. So again, there, there's going to be those asymmetries. And I think that our physio does a really, really good job of, of working on those to a point that the athletes, it's not affecting them. Um, but they, they exist, but they're still healthy and able to perform. So, yeah. Yeah, that's another one too, actually, because I mean, in yeah, any sport, you're going to have your dominant arm that's doing the hitting or the throwing or whatever. And then the other arm is going to be just kind of, you know, relaxed. Most of the time, it's not doing anything. But in sitting volleyball, I'm seeing like the the non dominant arm is a lot of the time doing a lot more of the pushing and like the supporting of, of balance and stuff like that, which kind of creates like, almost like an opposite effect where like the one side needs to be really good at reaching and like powerful and all that but then the other side needs to be really stable and pushing down and supporting and endurance and strong and that sort of thing um yeah it's it's just it's a really unique challenge i guess yeah for sure and with that that arm that's supporting as well like if it's always doing that we'll do is is try and get like more mobility in that in that side so that then um, you know, if they're locked up in the shoulder, then that might, you know, lock them up in their T-spine, which would then affect the way that they're actually able to use their dominant arm too. So that was something that, that we started looking at as well was even if this arm doesn't necessarily need to go through all the same ranges of motion as that, like hitting arm is for the sport, will its ability not to do that affect the other arm just by the, the way their, their bodies are and the way their bodies are kind of set up. So, um, yeah, we do a whole lot of, um, yeah, kind of through those ranges of motion on both sides for sure. Is there like, so going back, you referred to like working with Mike and working with Joel and, and coaches like that here at the U of A and the, the interest they have and the use they've used with like dynamic correspondence. Is that a big piece of your kind of decision-making in, in the programming? Cause I imagine you know, again, this is a, a sport that you were diving into for the first time. 
as a strength coach. So was that a framework you were using to help you decide whether exercises or concepts fit into what you wanted to do or didn't fit into what you wanted to do? Yeah, absolutely. It was. Yeah. That was one of the the biggest drivers of a lot of those, um, the decisions that I was, I was making, of course, not everything I'm looking at, I'm trying to, to make a volleyball specific exercise. Cause we want to train the different, uh, different aspects too. But, um, especially when I, when I started was like I said, right before the lockdown too. So I kind of started with the team and then everything got shut down and it was like, okay, we were supposed to, I mean, the Paralympics were supposed to happen last year. So we were supposed to be like doing exhibition games and getting all of this, this volleyball, uh, exposure. And so one of the, the big challenges that came up and why dynamic correspondence was so important for me at that time was, you know, we're on this roll with training and suddenly it's just like dead stop. So how do we kind of maintain everything that they've been doing from like on the court and the, the physical qualities that have been trained on the court throughout this period of lockdown that is going to be who knows kind of how long. So how do we, how can we continue some of that work and, and pair it with the, the volleyball work that they're able to do at home, just, you know, against a wall and whatnot and, and maintain some of that volume. Till yeah, like- those are just some of the things I was hearing as you were describing as Braden was asking some of the questions and yeah, this limb is doing that and this this limb is moving in that type of motion and doing this type of activity. And it, it sounded like that was maybe some of the framework that you were using to decide what goes in and what doesn't go in on more the, the specific end, like you, you mentioned with, with some of those exercises. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so definitely one of the frameworks I used was, was with the dynamic correspondence and then uh, really interesting I thought was, was looking kind of into more like the dynamic systems theory stuff with, when working with parasport athletes. So kind of that interaction of, of constraints of the individual environment and, and the task are a little bit different than, than when you're working with uh, maybe an able-bodied individual too. So that was a framework that I, I for sure applied at first when, uh, when getting into like, well, how do I change up these exercises for, for different people? Um, as well, because that having a, a prosthetic limb is then, uh, you know, an individual part of the constraint, but also almost like an environmental too, because what are the kind of mechanical capabilities of this prosthetic limb and how does it affect what, what you as an individual can, can kind of do. So that was the more nuanced side that I, that I went after as well. Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, real quick, before we dive deeper into, into that stuff, I haven't heard of dynamic correspondence or dynamic systems before. Um, can we like define that real fast? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, for dynamic correspondence, basically this, uh, this kind of idea that, um, that exercises that like look like the sport may not always be training the skills that like you, you think that they are, unless they kind of satisfy um, a few different like key parameters. So, um, things like the, the range of motion or, and the, the direction and the intensity, like of the effort, are, are those actually being replicated by the movement that you're doing? Or does it just kind of like qualitatively look ish like the sport? So, um, when you're trying to get more sport specific, sometimes, um, coaches might just say, okay, well, this kind of looks like an overhead movement that we might do at some point. But then if you actually get into, like I said, like the kinematics, kinetics of that, that sporting movement versus the exercise, you're like, well, this exercise is way below the intensity that I actually would, would need to train that for the sport or the, the direction of that effort is, uh, way off. So basically a few different criteria that you, that you would satisfy kind of in the gym or through those exercises to check off before saying, okay, this is a sport specific exercise, um, basically. And then in terms of like dynamic systems theory, I'm, I'm no systems theory expert, so <laughs> don't, uh, don't hold me to that. Basically it's just that, that idea that, uh, um, you know, learning and whatnot kind of happens through, through the interaction of, of different constraints at, at different levels in a person or around a person. So individual um, constraints, the environmental constraints you might be operating within, and then the task constraints, kind of what they're actually doing, um, are, are all kind of at play when when you're looking at performance in kind of any any scenario. Braden, if you think back to Kin three fifty six at Waterloo, that's we talked about dynamic course or a dynamic systems theory yeah how we perceive the world and intake information and what do we do with it and 
and all yeah, that jazz. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, all all of that stuff is stuff that I I guess I I mean I knew it. I just didn't know it was attached to those definitions. So thank you, thank yeah. you for that. But yeah, those are I guess definitely good things to be thinking about all the time. Um, uh, so you were just talking about the um, like a prosthetic limb, um, and obviously there's different levels of amputation, and even putting that aside, there's some people don't have an amputation at all. They have some other sort of um, event that led them down this path. Um, and both of those things are going to lead to a lot of different strategies in movement and, you know, like the hip rotation to, to hit and all those sorts of things. Um, how does that sort of influence the individualization, I guess, of the, of the training program? Yeah, for sure. So it can be like, I think when you, when you start working with parasport, it's, it can seem a bit almost intimidating of the level of individualization that you might need to do based off of different, different individuals. So at first, my first meeting with each athlete, you know, no person has the same amputation, of course, or experienced the same surgery following the amputation or for the amputation, or even um, how the prosthetic limb fits on, on them is going to be completely different. So um, what, I, what I kind of had to just think of is, is like, stop, hang out, like chill for a second and think of the fact that like, I've never worked with an athlete who hasn't needed a modification at some point in their life. So it's not actually as, you know, wild as, as you might think it's just, it's just coaching and we're, we're changing things all the time. Right. So what, uh, what the key for me was, was to really listen to, uh, those athletes. Like they know their bodies, um, obviously, obviously best. And they're living with that, uh, with that amputation every single day. So they, they understand kind of the, the capabilities um, they've got also working with the physio really closely uh, to talk about the individual athletes, uh, kind of what muscles are still present um, within that limb, where is the, is the amputation, what, uh, what loading would actually be appropriate for, for, for different people as well will tie into it. Um, and what I've been able to, to tease out a bit more since I've been spending more time with the team too, is what is a limitation that maybe is a true limitation that we, we won't push. So there are things like the, what the amount of weight or maybe something like that, that your, your prosthetic limb can support. That's not something that I can work on. Like that's, that is a constraint that, that exists there, but what are the parts that we can actually push a little bit? Um, has been, has been interesting. So I've had some athletes who maybe have never done like a split squat before that was the the big breakthrough a lot for a lot of them was because their thought was always well I have an above knee amputation I don't have the support on the one leg I will never basically be able to do a split squat but knowing kind of the and developing a relationship of course with the athletes as well to know to what degree you can actually push through some of those maybe perceived limitations um, to to get similar results across the team but uh, it comes down like for actually kind of each individual, it comes down to just watching the way that they're, that they're moving and um, ranges of motion for me are really huge in deciding like what is going to be an acceptable range of motion in a squat for one athlete versus for another. So when I'm actually in the gym with them, I know I can push this person a little bit further because maybe they have a below the knee amputation and I know that they can get to uh, this depth of squat. Whereas with this other person, I know that they, that they can't. So um, there's actually not a ton that I have to do in terms of changing exercises completely and like omitting exercises based on, on the level of amputation. It just really depends on the individual, kind of uh, what range of motion they're able to go through and, uh, and the constraints that might be there because of the, the prosthetic limb as well. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, so it's more the, the typical, like you, you probably have a skeleton for your program. And this type of movement, that type of movement, and then you're just selecting a different variant or different version of that type of movement based on what I presume is coming from these individual conversations you've had with the athletes. But it's, like you said, it's maybe not that different from what we do coaching any other sport and you make a slight tweak or change here or there. Exactly. Yeah, that was it was actually really surprising of how similar it was to, to coaching in other sports um, that I have just based on, you know, someone comes in and they're rolled their ankle or something like that. And you have to adapt for that. And or they, you know, twisted a twisted a 
wrist, whatever it is. It's not, not that different. Um, the, actually the, the skeletons and whatnot that we've started to build out too, is kind of having different frameworks for the different training ages of our athletes. So that's, that's been one, um, interesting part about parasport as well, is that you have people who might be coming into the sport, uh, not at the same age or, or, you know, developmental level because they're, they've decided to join this sport following, um, an amputation or something like that. And prior to that, they had no experience. Now they're, I don't know, 30 years old coming in. Um, so our kind of long-term athlete development model is, is completely different than, uh, than in, uh, in certain able-bodied sports where you'd expect them to be at these different progressive stages at different ages. Uh, so that ties into, into the framework as well. So we've got kind of levels of program that we move through, which is um, based mostly on like how many SNC sessions they've had in their life. And when I say SNC sessions, it's like with a coach kind of uh, actually training versus just kind of a workout. Mm. Um, I think that's like a nice little segue. I'm really interested in like what kinds of exercises you like really tend to reach for more often or, or maybe exercises that you reach for with this population, but um, typically don't with another population um, with regards to like strength stuff. And like, I'm really interested to hear about like the endurance, like the, the cardio work and, and the agility work and speed work and stuff like that as well. Yeah, hundred um, percent. So it, for the stuff in the gym, um, a lot of the work since that I've been doing since coming in has basically been on just movement kind of competency. Cause a lot of our athletes are, are not super high training age. Um, you know, they don't have a ton of strength and conditioning experience. So what we've been doing over kind of the last year is, is those, can you do a, a hinge basically? And how do we have to change that based on your, uh, your amputation or a different level? Um, so Things that I would reach for, I, I definitely do more of kind of the Romanian deadlift style things where they don't actually have to bend a knee, um, whether they're above or below knee amputees, that works well. And I also think that uh, that kind of movement, um, not mimics, of course, but it, it transfers well to the strength that they do need, like on the court, pushing off with one leg kind of rapidly and extending it really straight uh, in that position as well. Also, I, I don't know a lot of sports that I would program like shrugs for, um, like just a straight kind of overhead shrug, but with, with our athletes, it actually has worked really well, again, just for the, the shoulder resiliency um, um, piece. And so some of that very specific shoulder work in those planes of motion, I would probably not do with, say, my rugby team, for example, or just all uh, several different uh, shoulder-specific exercises, for sure. Um, as for the conditioning and the speed piece, uh, what I did was basically kind of go through all the, the video um, and look at again how long are these rallies, kind of how long do they need to be maintaining these efforts for, kind of what energy systems are, are at play at different kind of parts of the game or in different efforts in this game. Um, there was some research that was, that was done about heart rate uh, in sitting volleyball that was interesting because to me, uh, looking at it, it looks like a very just anaerobic sport, like quick kind of efforts over and over that kind of thing. But, uh, but what they found is that with the, where their heart rate was at, um, throughout the game, there's actually a really high level of aerobic fitness that the, uh, that the athletes need as well. So that played into, into my conditioning too. So some of the conditioning sessions that we'll do will be like, uh, like a 15 seconds on 15 seconds off. How many times, uh, can you go up and down a five meter lane basically in your, like sitting on the ground, um, like that. And then we kind of track, are you able to do more reps of that over time kind of thing, or kind of programming more reps of that over time. And then the, the speed stuff too is, is again, mostly like that five meter, um, speed, but with lots of rest, so it doesn't turn into a conditioning session. Uh, then the other stuff that we've started to, to put more into is like the different planes of motion or different areas and kind of hiding again, a bit more shoulder work in there. So they're not always just going back and forth, but, uh, you know, can we make a conditioning session that for one rep, they're going forward for the next rep, they're going to the left next rep, they're going to the right and then backwards, um, has, has played a lot into it. Brain, did you have anything to follow up with that or? Um, I mean, not really. Like, I think that's, it makes, it makes a lot of sense for sure to like, I've been 
I've been listening to a lot of different um, strength and conditioning podcasts lately. And um, uh, a common theme, I guess, is you don't want to coach the movement too much. You kind of just want to give them um, a task or a problem to solve and then let them solve it to the best of their ability. And the more creative you can get with that kind of a thing, then, um, you know, then the, the more capable the athlete's going to be, um, the more variety of exposures they can have and that sort of thing. So that, <clears throat> I mean, it makes sense. Like it, it sounds like, okay, you need to go, you know, five meters in this direction as fast as you can. That's like, you're not telling them how they need to do it. It's just, it, this is a problem and then you need to solve it to the best of your ability. And it's very, um, a high translation to, to the game, I imagine. So yeah, it sounds like really it's, it's simple, but I, I don't think it's what a lot of people would expect, you know? It's, it's worked out, I think, well so far. It's something we've introduced more recently, kind of in the last few months, as people are able to get court sessions and whatnot, that they can then do their conditioning at their court sessions. They actually have the space to, to do this and um, just tracking kind of the, the RP and the session RPE at, at practices when they've been centralizing. Um, kind of before we started doing this on-court conditioning, they're usually, they're pretty high um, session RPs, you know, you're coming together only once a month, not getting a ton of volleyball in between. And since introducing the, uh, these kind of court style conditioning sessions, um, the, the RPEs of each session at practice have then been, been trending downwards a bit. So um, that's been, been nice to see and, and it'll be interesting to kind of track that over more time as well. Yeah, that leads like really well into sort of the last thing that I wanted to like talk to you about or ask you about because was some of the the tracking and the load calculation you've been doing to figure out what kind of stress you're placing on the athlete. And to me, the really cool thing about this is, yeah, this is going to be specific to, to seated volleyball and the sport that you're working with, but the idea and the innovation behind this is something that any strength coach in any sport can start to come up with is how do I track and figure out the specific load I'm putting on my athletes. And the, a lot of the research in standing volleyball comes from jumping, mm -hmm. but as you mentioned with seated volleyball, there's no jumping. So then how do you figure out the, the intensity or the stress on the athletes in sessions and in practice? So I'd be really curious to hear, sort of the system or the, the process you've created here to figure out what's the stress of practice on your athletes. Yeah, absolutely. So in the, in the past, we've used kind of the session RPE method, which is, is good, you know, it gives me good information. Um, but then to actually kind of characterize something to the level that, that the jumps and standing volleyball would actually characterize it, what we had to kind of look at first was, well, what, would be maybe not equivalent, but kind of that main driver of, of intensity or, or load on the athlete's body in a, in a sitting volleyball practice or in a game. And what I, what I determined off that was, was not, not even the overhead movements that would determine it, but more the pushing on the ground and how much are they moving in these sessions is what's really going to, to load up their bodies and load up their shoulders quite a bit. So um, what I've decided on is using the number and the magnitude of accelerations on the floor that's happening in a, in, in a practice or in a game. So you can do that through a couple different ways. Uh, you can count it from video for one. So we've also got, I've also got like some video analysis software that I can, I can calculate uh, acceleration and velocity in, in meters per second. That's pretty time consuming though, because it involves me, you know, going through video. Say, that sounds monotonous where you're just like, click, 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 and just recording whatever. Yeah. That's a job for an intern, I think. <laughs> yeah. It's Maybe I can find, yeah, find an undergrad student here at UVic that wants to, wants to for a job. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that, that's one way that I've looked at doing it. But like you said, it's a little monotonous and, and pretty time consuming. So um, something that I've, I've become more familiar with is, is an inertial measurement unit. So I don't know how much um, experience you have with these, but it's essentially a, a really small device that can measure things like acceleration in, in different planes. So it's got like an X, a Y, and a, and a Z axis, and it'll kind of tell you um, acceleration in these, in these different planes of motion. So what I'll, I'll be looking at doing here is putting one of these IMUs or inertial measurement units on, on the athletes and then kind of tracking over a practice combined with video at first, of course, um, 
both the, the, the features that happen in um, the data that's being collected. So a so big spike would indicate that that is an acceleration that's happening in kind of that, uh, that forwards and back plane. Um, and also then being able to calculate the, the acceleration that, that's actually occurring during that movement. And we can kind of start to, to characterize practices that way. So how often are they accelerating and, and what is the magnitude again in like a meters per second kind of uh, um, framework or frame that you'd, uh, that you'd look at. So these IMUs, they used to be pretty, pretty terrible, <laughs> like 10 years ago, they weren't amazing. Like it was, you know, an accelerometer of, of very uh, questionable validity. It's like typical wearable technology. Like it sucks when it first gets put on the market. Exactly. Exactly. And now they're, they're really coming out as something that can be be used in a lot of different contexts. So there's a ton of papers out there now even looking at how to use it for like force velocity profiling and whatnot. And you can do a ton. Of, I've used them in the past as well for vertical jump testing. Like I, I worked with on contract for a, a, a softball team that I, we had to go do vertical jumps in a field. So I had this IMU, put it on kind of their, uh, on their torso, and then we can do that. So I think it's a, it's a tool that's going to be emerging quite a bit more for this kind of testing. And I think that that, uh, yeah, that's how we're going to be um, really going to be quantifying these, these loads and practices and be able to, to get an accurate representation of load beyond just the, the session RPE. Uh, another thing that we can do with them is that uh, we're looking at like putting it kind of somewhere on the shoulder maybe, or, um, or part of the, the upper arm. And then if you can, you can kind of train a like machine learning model to detect different features of like a spike or a set and whatnot. And if every single time a spike or a set has these certain features in the data, then that's a way that we can count those movements too. So again, it's not me going through tagging spike, 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 set, 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 <laughs> and, and whatnot in, in this video. So it's something I'm really excited about um, those tools. I think like the one that I have, my personal IMU is like a hundred bucks and I can use it for like sprint testing, vertical jump testing, this kind of testing. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about it for sure. Yeah. I just think it's such a cool idea. It's so innovative that, you know, you come up with that, that idea. And to me, one of the big things about talking to other coaches is you get ideas from them. So yeah, I'm not working with, seated volleyball, for example. So the specific things you're doing with that IMU, I maybe don't need to do, but there are other athletes that I work with where maybe I can take that idea and go, Oh, okay. I could start to do some of these different measures, or I can look at this different variable. And so I think it's always just a cool idea to share with other coaches, some of the, the interesting or innovative things that you're doing. And when we were talking just sort of loosely about that, I was like, that's like, that's a sick idea to try to, th there's a hole in, in the research. There's not much there. And you go, well, I'm going to fill it and I'm going to do these things and come up with this solution. And so, yeah, I just think it's great to be able to share that with, with people. And then hopefully coaches listening, that sparks an idea where they can do something in their sport where they found that there's a gap and they go, oh, that that's the bridge. I'm going to try to do, do something like that or think in a similar way. 100%. And I mean, it's not like that idea kind of came to me like in a dream or something like that either. Like it's I heard not magic. Using IMUs in different sports, like in some different rugby testing or, or whatnot. And it was kind of like, okay, maybe there's something there, there for me. And I, I yeah, it turns out there is. So I, I hope that that can be a takeaway for other people too. So. Yeah. Even just the, the idea of like thinking about what is the most taxing part of this sport or the most stressful part of this sport and um like obviously like the way you're measuring it is really really cool and innovative i 100 agree with that but even like this is the thing that we need to track and like identifying that thing i think is really uh, impressive as well like that's a whole you know problem that I, I don't i don't know if people are thinking about that or not but it's it seems like a really really smart idea um, they, they should be they should probably know what's important in their sport so that's you know well, I mean, like that specific, like the amount of accelerations. You know, oh, like that, yeah, yeah. That idea, like specific to seated volleyball. Um, the last thing that I, I want to ask that I should have put in part of my last question, but the, the core stuff, you said you had some interesting, like really interesting creative core stuff that you've been doing. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
So what what do you, what do you like doing there? Um, for that, it's a lot of like uh, like some interesting trying to take these core exercises that might normally happen, kind of just like uh, forwards and backwards, and getting them into like different motions. So it'll be something like a uh, like a, a 90-90 and then also like a kind of a, an eccentric like core lower like backwards. Oh, like of, a rock back. Yeah, like a rock back. Yeah. yeah. Get all the way to the floor, and then can you get back up with it and whatnot? Um, so a lot of like kind of comboing these positions that they'll be in. So like a 90-90 with the core work too. Um, so it probably looks really wacky in the gym when they go off and do it on their own. Like, what the heck is that? Yeah, it can't be weirder than stuff track does. <laughs> yeah, that's true. breeds, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so a lot of that stuff, and then. Um, and that anti like lateral like flexion work trying to modify um some of that again for for people who have a prosthetic limb so are they actually able to to stay stable in their like hips and whatnot but then do some kind of movement so we've done a lot of um like dumbbell work again different planes of motion so right to the side and then kind of backwards diagonally and then kind of forwards diagonally as well so looks weird it works <laughs> yeah i'm sure, I'm sure that's it all does. that matters right does it work yeah. that sounds yeah that sounds good stuff i mean i think that would be interesting stuff for anybody to try honestly just to resist forces in different positions it's everyone yeah. needs to be able to do that so if you want to yeah if you want a humbling experience go for one of those uh like 90 90 and then uh lower backwards <laughs> I mean, honestly, for me, sitting in a 90-90 position without hand support is an accomplishment. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it was humbling for me to film that video to give to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you always want to appear like you're more athletic and stronger than the people that you coach, but that's not always the case. Stop for sure. Hmm. So yeah, I mean, that's there's a lot of good info there. I mean, I'm. I'm glad that you were able to, you know, come on the show and share some of these things. Hopefully everyone who was listening, uh, you know, you take something away and there's an idea that was sparked that you go, okay, now I can maybe start to think about this thing. I know there's certainly a few things that you've mentioned today that, you know, I'll have to go into the notebook and, you know, <laughs> figure out a few things and maybe look at getting an IMU or something like that. Um, but I mean, one of the other things, the listeners might take away is maybe some of the music you've been listening to. I know you like to, you, you like to stay active, you're mountain biking, you're lifting, doing stuff like that. So what have you been jamming to in the gym uh, recently uh, that you can share with the listeners and maybe give them something to go to for the next workout? hundred percent. It's actually so funny that you ask that because this is a conversation that I just had like last week with, with somebody while we were, we were out, uh, we were mountain biking and then we also like lift together and you know what he, what he described my, uh, my music taste as was uh chell rock. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? And he's like, chell rock, like all like of the NHL on like the NHL video games is what's oh, on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As soon as you said chell, I was like, I was thinking like, uh, you know, yeah. Chell playing chell. Chell. Yeah. So it's like the, you know, like dropkick Murphy's like wolf mother, uh, like the Fratelli's, you know, it was like going through, actually we were mountain biking. I was going for something I hadn't done before. And he just starts singing Chelsea dagger at me. So, you know, it's a good time. I bet in Spotify, if you searched up like Chell rock, I bet you could find a playlist. I should check it out. Yeah. I, I bet. Yeah. I, I bet there's something there. I'm almost certain that you can. Like there was one episode I was talking about that I I went back and listened to some of the old Madden NFL soundtracks. So it's it's there for sure. It's definitely there. Check it out, definitely. Then <laughs> that's amazing though, Chell Rock. I've never heard that before, but I, it's a great description because as soon as you said it, I knew exactly what you were talking about. Hundred percent. Great taste too. If I if I do say so myself. Good tunes. What about you, Braden? What were you listening to in the basement um, as you were working out this week? Oh, well, I did. Closed. It was, it was an outside workout. Actually, I got the tire beside the house and I was moving Ooh. that around in some different positions. So it was very tricky, very challenging. But, um, I, well, last week you talked about Blink-182 and how they're terrible. I, um, I did say that it's on record. Yeah. Blink sucks. Sorry. Um, so I was <laughs> like, I mean, I'll give them a shot and see, cause I've never really given them a shot myself. And, um, I won't say that they're terrible, but I didn't like it very much. Um, 
So then I started listening to Sum 41, who I also haven't really given a chance before, but oh, Sum 41 is good. For they're whatever sick. reason, they're linked in my brain. Blink-182 and Sum 41 are basically like, they must be the same-ish kind of a thing, but Sum 41 is very good. I, I definitely like that a lot. So that was that was my jam this week. Canadian as well. So oh, really? It's a bonus. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. What you, Tommy? I was, I was on the synth wave. Uh, <laughs> kick this week so i'm it's either metal or synth wave for me uh it's very extreme but i was listening to gunship who's a british synth wave band and they're sick they're 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 living in the past but it's like they're present in the future at the same time like the the music has this retro futuristic feel which most synth wave does so it's i wasn't working out to it but i was doing just about anything else like working and doing whatever i had a lot of that playing last week and this week and i'll probably still have a lot of it playing after this so yeah gunship pretty chill good to listen to retro futuristic sounds really hard to imagine it, yeah you just have to it's that's the only way i can describe it if it makes any sense which it probably doesn't because they conflict with one another but <laughs> it's it's retro future that's what it is very good um so yeah i mean that was that was a great chat thanks for thanks again for coming along uh molly um is there anything that you'd like to plug or shout out or any uh, any thoughts that you wanted to share that you didn't get the opportunity to yet no uh, yeah just that if if anyone else is kind of considering or already working with with parasport um like I said, it's, it's very similar really to working with any other athlete that might end up having something you need to modify for them. And it's, it's been an awesome experience for me, the, the exposure to, to pair and I've really loved it and hope to continue. Um, yeah. And thank you so much for having me. This was a great chat. Glad, glad I got to share some things, especially about those IMUs. Everyone I think should probably check them out. So. <laughs> yeah. I was stoked that you were able to, to come on and we, we really appreciate it. It's always fun to have a guest and then I don't have to listen to Brayden as much. <laughs> um, and we'll, we'll tag you in the post with stuff that goes out. So if people want to reach out and, and ask you some questions about that stuff, then that's probably the best place to, to get you. Yeah. hundred percent with, uh, you send it out on what Instagram I'm assuming is yeah. your thing. Yeah. Yeah. Just absolutely tag me and people can feel free to message me if they want to talk shop a little more. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect. Then, uh, yeah. Uh, and if you want to talk to me and Tommy about anything else then hit us up at the speed strength show on Instagram or speed strength performance for Tommy Braden Southern for me um, and yeah that was the speed strength show thanks for coming along world we'll see you next time peace